Hello, and welcome to Net301. This is best practices for AWS PrivateLink. If this isn't the session that you're attending to, to attend, well, you're in the wrong room, but you should probably still stick around. Uh, thank you for attending this session. It's 4.45. You could be on your way to happy hour, but you are here. So I think this is a better use of your time. I'm James Devine. I'm a solutions architect on our nonprofit team. I'm joined by Puneet Ganghat, a senior product manager for EC2, and also Paul Ravello, a cloud architect for HSBC. Before we, we dig into our content, I wanted to do a little level set. This is a 300-level session. If you don't know what PrivateLink is and have never heard of it, um, you'll walk away knowing what, what it is now, but we won't focus on a lot of the basics. We're going to dive in deep. So we're going to go into data flows, architectures, use cases, and best practices, and it will be a, a very technical session. The good news is you don't need to be a networking guru to understand and use PrivateLink. In fact, it's as simple as doing an API call. So uh, it's pretty simple to use the, the service and get going with it. And we'll hopefully share that throughout this session. For the agenda, we're going to do an intro, kind of the how and the why of PrivateLink. Then we'll get into some specific use cases and data flows. And then we'll do best practice and cover best practice throughout the session. And then Paul will talk about how HSBC is using PrivateLink to enable their advanced connectivity and solve some of their problems as they scale out and build in the cloud. And then we'll open it up to some Q&A so you can ask us and questions and, and get a chance to address anything we didn't in the session. To start off with kind of the why of PrivateLink, much like everything AWS, over 90% of what we build is driven directly by what our customers ask us to build and what we hear that they want. One of, the, one of these things has been, you know, customers have a lot of VPCs. It's free to spin up a VPC. Anyone can go and launch one in the console. By default, you can spin up to five. So customers have many, many VPCs that they need connectivity to. There's also the need for private connectivity between VPCs. So a lot of times for regulatory or, or compliance needs, having a, a public IP address is just a non-starter in many environments, or there's just the, the desire to not have that. There's also the desire to access AWS services through private IP addresses. Being a cloud provider, all of our service endpoints are public with public IP addresses. So yeah, this presents a, a bit of a challenge when you want to address them through private IP addresses within your, your VPC. There's also the desire largely to, to limit or remove the need for an IGW, an internet gateway, especially if you have something connected back to an on-prem environment. There's many times when it's just seen as a, a security risk or a non-starter if a VPC has an IGW attached. So it's a, it, all of these needs together led us to, to develop PrivateLink. This clicker is not working. Digging in a little deeper to the why of PrivateLink, the, the essence of it is bringing a service into a VPC. So there's a little bit of nomenclature here. On the right side, we have a provider VPC. This is where someone is hosting a service. On the left side, we have a consumer VPC. This is someone who's consuming the service. On the service provider side, it's just a network load balancer, an NLB. And then through PrivateLink, we're able to extend that network load balancer connectivity into the consumer VPC. And that's the PrivateLink. This is called a VPC endpoint. You'll see this abbreviated throughout the slides, VPCE. It's an interface VPC endpoint. It combines two pretty fundamental but important concepts. The, the basic being a VPC, a virtual private cloud, your, your slice of the 
Amazon network that you can provision your, your services in that's isolated from the internet. Also, delivering software as a service, having a software that you're able to create and extend into another VPC. And again, this all goes out through private connectivity. We're not connecting through the internet or, or leaving uh, a region when we have this connectivity. Getting into the, the what is private link, it's a service-specific link between a consumer and a provider VPC. It's an interface VPC endpoint. You might be familiar with gateway VPC endpoints for S for S3 and DynamoDB. This is a different type of endpoint. It consists of one or more ENIs, an elastic network interface, that reside within the consumer side VPC. We have DNS at the regional and zonal level. And the front end on the provider end is a network load balancer. On the back end, we use Hyperplane to link the VPC endpoint to the network load balancer. We did a, a good talk last year about this, uh, about what Hyperplane is and, and how we're able to scale out and break apart TCP sessions at scale and provide this, this back-end environment that's highly available. And it works for a number of our services. This is what at first powered uh, NAT, NAT Gateway. It powers NFS and Private Link and some other internal services as well. The advantage here is we eliminate the need for, for your typical type of networking workarounds that you need to do, like NAT, VPN, or proxy devices. So things like conflicting or overlapping IP addresses, if you go to make a peering connection, it's just not going to work. But if you're leveraging private link, the IP addresses don't matter because you're leveraging Hyperplane to do the backend connectivity. With Hyperplane, we can access three different, or with, uh, I'm sorry, with private link, we can access three different types of services. There's AWS services, so more and more of our services we're creating interface VPC endpoints for, so you can address them directly from IP addresses within your VPC. We also have customer-hosted internal services. You can actually go and create your own services and then extend them into your own VPCs or into uh, additional VPCs that are outside of your account. There's also third-party services, which allows you to create SaaS products and extend them and put them onto the, the marketplace for private link. So if we go and take a look at what this looks like for AWS services, I have my instances on the left in my consumer VPC. They access a VPC endpoint. So that is an IP address that exists within that consumer VPC. And then on the back end, private link handles that connectivity to the AWS service. So I'm using IP, local IP addresses within my VPC. And the uh, back end service has you know, no, no notion of, of that private IP address range. And we handle that for seamless connectivity to the AWS service. So here, you don't need an IGW. You can see, in fact, that the internet is far outside of our, our regional construct in, in this diagram. So we're having that type of private connectivity using IP addresses within the VPC. So an uh, important concept with, uh, with deploying VPC endpoints is a VPC endpoint versus an ENI. So if you're familiar with deploying infrastructure within a VPC, you have an ENI, an elastic network interface. With a VPC endpoint, it, we deploy in one or more availability zones. You deploy your elastic network interface. And that VPC endpoint is collectively the collection of those ENIs. So for availability, our best practice would be to do at least two availability zones. You're never going to have more than one ENI for private link within a availability zone. You also don't need to deploy against, deploy this in all availability zones. So in this example, availability zone D doesn't have a VPC interface endpoint in it, but we can still connect to it from the other 
availability zones that do have an ENI resonant in it. So as we go through, this is an important slide to kind of ingrain in your mind, because you'll see the VPC endpoint um, diagram on the back end. What that actually looks like is, is individual elastic network interfaces within your VPC. And this is very similar to, to what we do with the network load balancer. If you've deployed a network load balancer, same concept where you have one or more ENIs on the back end that the traffic gets mapped to. We're going to now dig into some use cases and show the practical application in ways that customers are leveraging private link to extend and connect differently to their applications. This is an example of an existing application. Pretty much any application that you have deployed today that will work behind a network load balancer, so if it's TCP-based, we can load balance it and have our instances. So on the right here, we have our service provider, which has instances across three availability zones, so it's highly available. Our instances in our service consumer here uh, on the top left, we can see they hit a VPC endpoint, and they address the network load balancer by that IP address of the VPC endpoint resident within their VPC. Over private link, we have connectivity to our network load balancer on the back end. And then we're able to load balance to the instances. And this works with pretty much any existing application now. You can start decoupling and leveraging the private link so you can extend the services into the VPCs. And this, this works at scale. This is when we provide the same technology we provide our customers and SaaS providers to deploy their infrastructure with private link. It's the same thing that we're doing on the back end. We're making the same type of API calls you would at scales to you know, tens of hundreds of thousands of VPC endpoints. So it's a very high, highly scalable service to be able to connect together multiple large numbers of VPCs. Another way to integrate private link into existing applications is to leverage proxying. So the typical type of proxy, so if you go into your Linux instance and set your export proxy, or in a Windows instance, if you go in and set your, your internet settings to go out through a proxy, if you were able to do that, then you can uh, leverage private link for those connectivities. So in this architecture, in this central VPC, this is a proxy VPC, we have a fleet of proxy servers. This could be Squid, or it could be some type of other, uh, other commercial type of offering. And we just, after we've set those OS settings, we'd access our network, our, our um, VPC endpoint. And over private link, we hit the network load balancer. And then we're able to be directed to one of the proxy servers on the back end. This proxy server can then reach out over VPC peering to other service VPCs. So I have end-to-end -end connectivity into a service VPC that I'm not directly connected to. I can have overlapping or duplicative IP addresses, and I can still have end-to-end -end connectivity. From a security perspective, I don't have any ability of my service VPC to reach back in to my service consumer VPC. So we're able to provide a, a high level of, of isolation there. I can also go ahead and route traffic out to an IGW here if I wanted to have a, a proxy fleet at scale where I have central logging and monitoring, and I can direct all of my internet traffic out through this central proxy VPC construct. So this is a, a good way for an existing application to be able to leverage proxying. Um, granted, you would need to, to modify every instance in the environment uh, through those environment variables to, to, to leverage that proxy server. But once you did, you'd be able to, to use it at scale in your existing application or build out net new. Another common deployment is microservices, being able to have a, a number of, of very small services doing very specific tasks within a VPC. 
And this we can build out and, uh, across VPCs or within a VPC. The instances, again, will, will hit their, the VPC endpoint, talk through private link to the network load balancer in the service provider, and then to the backend instance. And for, if we were to deploy another service, like we have two microservices in, in this architecture, that would, we would need another net, uh, VPC endpoint. Important point here, it's one NLB on the back end to one VPC endpoint. It's not, you don't get um, you know, multiple. So then we're able to talk through that secondary VPC endpoint into another service running in another microservices VPC. Uh, you, you also could, in this type of example, have multiple services behind the same network load balancer in the same VPC. And using different ports, you can have different target groups. So you can run multiple services behind the, the same network load balancer. And some of our customers do that just to, to reduce the number of VPC endpoints they have to deploy within their VPC, because there are some practical limits. You can't uh, deploy you know, hundreds of these. Uh, we have a 20 is the, the base limit, which can be increased. Uh, as needed. Another interesting use case is, is being able to extend services in AWS from on-prem. So in, in this example, we have our, our on-prem environment in the left, so a typical hybrid type of, of scenario. We're able to deploy a network load or VPC endpoint in our shared services VPC that we can connect to directly from our on-premise environment, either through Direct Connect or VPN. Then over private link, we can connect directly into that network load balancer and then into our backend instance. So provides this type of hybrid connectivity. Uh, doesn't look all that exciting, but what actually is going on here, we have connectivity from our on-prem environment into the cloud, but we don't have actual layer three connectivity between our service provider and our corporate data center. This also works for SaaS type of products that you're consuming in the cloud. You're able to extend that type of hybrid connectivity while not giving that full end-to-end -end layer three routing. So for example, it could, this could be a third-party product that you're running and accessing that you don't fully trust and want to have layer three access into your on-prem environment. And in this architecture, they don't. There's, only, there's no direct connection from the service provider into the shared services VPC or the corporate data center. This also works in the reverse path. So you can access on-premise resources through direct connector VPN. So very similar here, but on the left now we have our service consumers, which are two VPCs running uh, in the cloud. And then we have a shared services VPC in the middle, which has our network load balancer. Behind this network load balancer, we create IP target groups. So we're able to connect in from a VPC endpoint to our network load balancer. And then the IP target groups on this load balancer allows us through either direct connect or VPN to connect to our services running in an on-prem environment. Same as our previous scenario, there's no direct layer three routing between our VPCs running in the cloud and our corporate data center. So this enables uh, a, a good level of isolation and, and segregation. Uh, these VPC service consumers on the left can all be the same IP address range within them. So you can stamp out you know, kind of a repeatable pattern for your infrastructure and deploy it out at scale without having to worry about conflicting with an on-prem environment, which is, is typically a, a problem that can consumers have is when you deploy uh, in the cloud and start spinning up ciders, you can very easily come into conflicting ranges with, with on-prem and then not have connectivity. So it allows you to, to circumvent that. Another uh, type of example, and this one's kind of more exciting, this is uh, using Transit Gateway, a service that we released Monday. So Transit Gateway can provide layer three routing between all of our, our VPCs. So these VPCs are our, would be our service consumer side of private link. And 
we're able to extend that layer three with the transit gateway and not need to run something like your traditional transit VPC or, or uh, you know, VPC scaling at scale. It, our, service, our shared services VPC on the top right of this diagram, we're running our VPC endpoints so that we're able to connect to it with the transit gateway. We also have Route 53 Resolver in this shared services VPC. This is a service that we announced last Monday, actually, um, which allows hybrid DNS so you can connect to both on-prem and in the cloud and share your, your DNS across VPCs. So by creating an attachment from that Route 53 Resolver to each of our service VPCs, we're able to provide DNS resolution for these private hosted DNS names in our shared services VPC. So you'd go into the shared services VPC, create an outbound VPC endpoint, and that would allow that Route 53 resolver to resolve to the .2 IP address resolver in that VPC, which would then resolve to the private DNS name, so which is uh, a really cool thing. Before Route 53 resolver, you'd be spinning up unbound servers or doing some other type of advanced connectivity or hybrid DNS to, to get that working. So our VPCs connect in directly and access these VPC endpoints. This is a good way to, to reduce the number of VPC endpoints you're, you're deploying and also centralize your connectivity. So it, it can get expensive, especially if you get into the tens of hundreds of thousands of VPCs, deploying these VPC endpoints in every VPC uh, just might not, might not be practical. Also for extending it to an on-prem environment, so our on-prem environment can also connect through VPN to our transit gateway here, and then we can connect into these services what we do in this type of environment is we have an inbound Route 53 resolver endpoint sitting in our shared services VPC, which would allow us to route our resolve names within this shared services VPC to our on-prem environment. So it allows that de hybrid DNS from on-prem into the cloud. Another type of advanced connectivity we, we can do here is cross-region connectivity to services. So this, the, the, on the right here, this is just typical doing private links, so we're able, we're in the same region, we're connecting in over private link to our backend instances through a network load balancer, very similar to, to all the use cases that, that we've just presented. What's unique here is we have inter-region peering, and we're extending this service into another region. In this example, US West 1, where we don't actually have any infrastructure deployed, the service doesn't exist there. We're still able, through this inter-region VPC peering, to connect to the VPC endpoint, and from there, we're able to connect to the network load balancer and into the backend instances. So this is a, a really good way to be able to extend into and grow your, your footprint into regions where you don't actually have your service running. It, it might not always be practical to, to span a, a service across you know, every region that we possibly have. So that you can extend it, run, run in one main region and then extend across the world. And then eventually as your service becomes more popular in a specific region or you have a need for it to run in a region, you can, you can extend that again, through inter-region peering or leveraging private link natively. We can also present services in another region by leveraging uh, a VP, uh, service provider network load balancer in an additional region that actually doesn't have any of our service infrastructure deployed. So in this example, a typical, you know, everything we've been talking about thus far, being able to connect in directly, what's unique here is on the bottom in EUS1 in our service provider, we, have, we actually have an NLB deployed, and then we have IP targets. And the IP targets are the instances running in US East 1, and we're, doing, we're connecting to them through inter-region inter VPC peering. So in this case, I can present private link endpoints 
in this case in EUS1, and connect in across private link and through the network load balancer into the instances. So this is a, a really good way, especially if you're, you're a service provider and you're deploying infrastructure and you, you have the need to extend, you might have a customer that says, I want to operate in another region, or you might be growing out your infrastructure into an additional region. You're able to extend that service through private link directly into the VPC in another region while out, without actually having to deploy your full infrastructure of your service within that region. So this, is, this might be a good short uh, stopgap type solution so you can continue to deploy your infrastructure and scale it out and then eventually deploy your service within that region. Another option we have is SaaS for service providers. We have a private link marketplace where you can go, if you're a, a service provider, you can go and publish your service onto the marketplace and then your consumers can leverage that service in a pay-as-you-go model through private link in IP addresses that exist within their VPC. So it allows customers that type of private connectivity into the service that you manage that, that would otherwise be uh, public. And this is all done through private IP addresses without the need to go over the public internet or have an internet gateway. So this, if you're a consumer, you can leverage these products today on the marketplace. If you're a, a provider that's interesting in publishing to the marketplace, you can go ahead and do that as well. There's an onboarding process for that. We're going to now kind of switch gears a little bit and dig into some best practices to highlight within these architectures things that we'd recommend doing and, and how you'd recommend doing them. One of those, the first of which is to carefully consider DNS. So DNS can, at the surface, is a very simple service, but when you get into the implementations and having hybrid environments and how you need to resolve some things in the cloud and some things to on-prem, it can quickly become complicated. So you want to find a DNS strategy that works for your architecture, kind of a squirrely way of, you know, it depends what's the best thing to do, but we do provide a lot of options to, to do that. The first of which is to use a, a private DNS name. This is an option where we automatically create a private DNS name for you, so you just manage that, and within the VPC, it will resolve that private DNS name, and you can access the VPC endpoint natively, and we'll dig into some examples of what this actually looks like. You can also use the AWS-assigned uh, public DNS names for each interface endpoint that we provide by default when you create a VPC endpoint. You can also create private CNames or aliases to in Route 53 private hosted zones. This is if you want to connect to the and use custom names for what we already provide. Uh, the key here is using a CNAME or an alias. That way, we can, you can get that round robin that we, we do on the, on the names. Or you could um, create direct A names if you, if you needed that in your DNS. And there's also the ability to use Route 53 Resolver or your, your on-premise DNS service if you want to manually manage that and handle that. So if we look at a DNS example of, of using a private DNS name, there's this checkbox uh, when you go and deploy private link or the option when you deploy it to the CLI where you enable private DNS names. What this looks like is we'll actually deploy a, a private host name. So in this case, it's CloudWatch, so logs.useast1.com. AmazonAWS.com, if I pull up a console and I go to resolve that within my VPC, I'll see instead of the public IP address for this name, I'm actually getting a private IP address, which is the ENI for in that specific region. And we round robin this by default. So if I go and do this again, I'll get a different IP address range. This provides high availability between the different ENIs that you have up and running, which is why we'd recommend doing two or more so you have that high availability and you can withstand any type of uh, outage or, or problems that can come up. 
That said, these IP addresses we also create direct names for, which are here. So these are public DNS names that will resolve to those specific ENIs within your, within your architecture. You might want to create zonally aware services where you want directly to access the ENI within your availability zone, and you don't want to do this type of round robin. And in that case, you'd leverage these, these public DNS names that are zonal specific. And you can see here I have a, we have ABCD when this is deployed, because I've deployed in four availability zones. We can also not check this box, which is an option. So now, when I resolve this name, I'll get a public DNS name. And this public DNS name is not specific to the service. So if I wanted to use CloudWatch, I would need to go and modify my application to use this long DNS name. If that's something that you wanted to do, you certainly could do that and, and make sure that your application logic can, can handle that type of mapping. But again, if I do a, a resolution of this, I can see it's a, a private IP address within my VPC. And it, actually, it lists out all of them, and we round robin between them. And we still provision the public DNS names as well. So you have those names that you can leverage. Uh, uh, probably a more practical example of this would be using, again, the, the Route 53 resolver. So in, in this example, my instances up here want to resolve to my CloudWatch VPC endpoint within my VPC. So I reach into the Route 53 resolver. I have this explicit rule. Um, so it will hit the .2 resolver within the VPC and connect directly to CloudWatch running within my VPC. And this can be peered, and you can have multiple VPCs, but this is just a, you know, kind of more of a simplistic example. Now, if I then wanted to resolve to my, my Active Directory infrastructure running in a shared services VPC, in this example, corp.example.com, I could then hit the Route 53 resolver. It would know that there's an explicit rule in there, and it would, through an outbound Route 53 resolver endpoint, would reach into my shared services VPC and resolve this host name, and then I'd have direct connectivity into that, into that VPC using that host name. So what's, if you've deployed this type of environment before, if you see any of our blog posts, we have you know, extensive documentation on doing this with unbound servers or deploying on-prem infrastructure or setting up some type of proxy. The nice thing here, leveraging our Route 53 resolver, is you're able to do this in a highly, a highly available, scalable manner using the AWS Route 53 resolver service. So definitely something to take a look at if you need to, to scale out and provide this type of hybrid connectivity. And it can also make your life a little bit easier when you're leveraging private link and creating VPC endpoints. Our next set of best practices is around the, the zonality of private link. So private link is a zonal service, much like net, network load balancer, because it's powered by private link, or it's powered by hyperplane on the back end. So you want to take this into confound as you build out and use the service. So our best practice would be to use the regional DNS name. That regional DNS name will round robin between your different availability zones. So you don't need to think about how, how you deploy and route to those specific VPC ENIs on the back end. It would all be automatic, and the traffic would route to that. So you have resilience against an AZ failure or AZ level issue. On the service the provider side of this, you want to make sure your network load balancer is deployed in most, if not all, availability zones. And we have an example of that, what happens if you don't do that. Um, but basically, you want to make sure that your customers, when they go and want to use your service, can actually leverage the service in the availability zone they'd like to. You also want to carefully consider whether enabling cross-zone load balancing or not. 
Some people just enable it as you know, willy-nilly, but there, there are some cross-zone data transfer um, charges and some additional latency that you can get if you enable that. Uh, but if you, there are you know, certainly re valid reasons to enable it, and we'll go through an example of that. So if, if we go through the same example, and, and this time, we've, on the left, we have our VPC endpoint, but you can see the actual ENIs here. So we have two ENIs on the VPC endpoint in AZA and AZB. On the service provider side, we have our network load balancer applying that best practice of using every availability zone. We have an ENI in every availability zone. So when we go through and do our name resolution, this clicker is the worst. Oh. <laughs> so we, we can see our name resolves. We get our private IP address. So my instance is on my top left. We'll hit that VPC endpoint. That VPC endpoint will talk to the network load balancer. And notice this is the VPC endpoint and network load balancer. It's a straight arrow. This, this, that'll always be the case. This, since it's a zonal service, we don't actually, that traffic won't ever go across availability zones. So just something to keep in mind that it, it is a zonal service. However, it, on my second call, I get a different IP address for, for a different TCP flow. And now this time, I'm going through this network interface in AZB. So I'm doing cross-zone um, traffic here, but on the same, um, same token, it, it still goes from that network interface in AZB to my NLB interface in AZB as well to the backend instance. And this is using the round robin, just an example of, of how, that would, how that works on the, the data flow end of it. Now, if I enable cross-zone load balancing, I can get a little bit different type of a data flow. So my instance resident in AZB talks to an ENI. That ENI goes directly to the NLB in that region, in that availability zone. But now there's no service actually running. There's no instances in that availability zone. Since we've enabled cross-zone load balancing, we're able to route traffic to instances in AZC. So there would be cross-zone load balancing here, and obviously slightly more latency because we're going across availability zones. But I can provide that connectivity by enabling cross-zone load balancing on my NLB on the provider side. So it's a good way for, on the provider side, if you need to load balance between different regions or different um, availability zones within your region and you want to be able to make sure that your traffic gets spread more evenly, it's, it's a good option for that. Uh, that said, if you, if you can deploy your, your infrastructure in every availability zone, then you might not need to, to enable this. So it, it's definitely something to consider. And we have some more examples of this when we get into costing. On the service provider side, the deploy in every the NLB in every availability zone. This is an example of kind of why you'd want to do that. Um, so on my service providers, on my service consumer side, I've gone through, I've searched for my private link service. It comes up, it found it, it's green. Now it asks me to deploy it. I only have subnets <clears throat> in this example in A, Z, B, and C. So I can't actually extend private link interface endpoints into A, C, or D in this example. And if I go here into F, I don't even have the option to deploy into that availability zone because on the provider side, I haven't deployed my NLB into that. So there's no ENI there for me to connect to. For the rest of these, for A, D, and E, I can actually go through, create a subnet, and then I can create, I'd be able to deploy my, my endpoint service within that VPC. But because I didn't deploy my NLB in F, I don't have that ability in this example to do that. Another best practice on the service provider side is to whitelist principles. Whitelisting a principle, this determines 
who can discover the service. So when you go through and provision a service, you need to search for, for service. If it's on the SaaS marketplace, it'll come up automatically. If it's one that you're provisioning, um, if you don't whitelist an account, it won't show up at all. So if you need granular permissions, you can go down to the IAM user or role. For a public service, you might want to do the wild card, just the star principle, so anyone can search for your service. And this is only to search for it. So once you've whitelisted a principle, they're able to find your service and search for it. Then there's the acceptance piece of this. So just because you've found a service doesn't mean you can actually go through and use it. So for more sensitive services, you, you want to make sure that you're leveraging um, this type of, of whitelisting to make sure you explicitly have to accept it. If it's a public service that you want to be out there on the internet for anyone to use, you can use the auto accept feature. And once this is enabled, um, any whitelisted principal would be able to directly access your service. So between the both of those, you want to make sure that you're appropriately using the right permissions so people can't access your service that you don't want to and that you're not exposing services um, just out to the internet. Another best practice here would be to leverage SNS notifications. You can manually have uh, you know, a Lambda function or something kick off an automated workflow to approve your, your endpoint acceptance. So just a consumer goes and finds it and wants access to it, that SNS notification can go in and automatically approve it instead of you having to go into the console or make the API call to actually go in and say, yes, I want this to have access. On the cost side here, uh, you want to make sure you're you know, obviously optimizing for cost, and that's one of the things that we're always concerned about with AWS to make sure our customers are, are optimizing cost and, and not overspending. On the consumer side, you're billed on a per gigabyte processed fee. You're also charged per ENI per hour it's run. So that's why we say to make sure that you use the, you're judicious about how many, or how many availability zones you're deploying your ENIs across. So if you went in, especially like for, for US East 1, we have six availability zones. If you deployed your endpoints across all of them, that's six. And then if you had 100 VPCs, you, you know, now you're talking 600 ENIs, which is, is quite a large amount of ENIs, which, which may be overkill. And you're certainly paying you know, more, more than you need to for those endpoints to have them just up and running. You also want to take into account uh, cross-zone data transfer. So cross-zone data transfer does have a fee as well. So that might be some, some things to take into account as you build that out. On the service provider side, you're just billed on the NLB, so typical NLB fees. If you enable cross-zone load balancing, then you'd have a fee for NLB cross-zone traffic. There's actually no charges specifically for PrivateLink on the uh, service provider side. So it's just a matter of connectivity. And since that is within the same zone, there's no charges there. And we have an example that will go through what this actually looks like. In this, in, in this diagram that we'll walk through, the purple dollar signs are the consumer fees, and the red are the provider. So if I have an instance in availability zone A, I hit an ENI. The ENI has an hourly fee to run. By the, I then connect to the NLB. This is the per gigabyte fee of data processed by the VPC endpoint. And then there's no charge um, for that data transfer. There's just your, again, your NLB charges that you'd have to pay for just for running the NLB. Now, in, if I were to connect in from an instance from AZB, here I'm going to hit a cross-zone data transfer fee. So there will be a, a fee here for that cross-zone data transfer. I'm hitting that same ENI, which I'm already paying an hourly fee for. Then there's the per gigabyte fee for the connectivity into the NLB. 
and then no charge for the connectivity to the backend instances. If I now connect in from AZC to an ENI running in AZB, this has a cross zone data transfer fee. There's a fee, an hourly fee for that ENI, and then the per gigabyte fee to access the load balancer. And in this case, the provider doesn't have any instances running there, so there will be a cross-zone load balancing fee that they pay for, for this connectivity to the back-end service provider. So hopefully that was a good overview of best practices and some architectures you can deploy. I'll now invite Paul onto stage to talk about how HSBC is leveraging private link at scale. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name's Paul Ravello. I'm a cloud architect at HSBC. Uh, the team that I'm in builds patterns that we use repeatedly for different application teams to consume AWS services in a consistent manner. Um, a little bit of background on HSBC and some of the scale that we operate at. Uh, we're a large organization. We have uh, data that's dispersed across many systems globally. Uh, we want to leverage that data, but we need to do it in a secure manner. Uh, we have a large amount of IT staff uh, that, again, are globally dispersed. Not all of them are that far along the cloud journey, so we need to create patterns that can be consumed and understood easily. Not everybody is a deep AWS expert. Not everybody is a deep networking expert uh, in, in this space. Mm -hmm. ah. So like I said, we really want to use AWS to leverage that data that we have in all of those systems. We want to be able to connect those systems into AWS or connect from AWS to those systems repeatedly. Uh, we need to do that securely, and we need to do that rapidly uh, as new services get deployed. Uh, we have a very large and complex network at HSBC, and along with that comes complex IP addressing requirements, complex access requirements. Private Link really helps us in that regard by abstracting some of that away for us, and I'll show how uh, in a few slides. Uh, we have uh, you know, quite a bit of accounts. <laughs> uh, we took the approach to have multiple accounts and multiple VPCs to deploy our applications to really have a small blast radius for everything that we deploy. We really like this approach. It works well for us from a change management perspective. But when you start operating at the scale that we do for certain things, connectivity becomes a challenge. Um, this is really uh, something that Private Link has, you know, really helped us with tremendously. Here's an example of a typical scenario that, that you'll happen when you're operating at scale. You'll deploy a service into a, an account in a VPC, and eventually you'll deploy many more services in many other accounts, and all of a sudden they need access to that first service you deployed. Well, now you have a shared service. And how do you get access to that? Traditionally, you would use VPC peering. Um, you quickly run into limits. You run into VPC peering limits. You run into all kinds of issues with route table sprawl, security group sprawl, NACL sprawl, a lot of different 
things come into play there when you're trying to do this uh, across many, many VPCs. Um, one of the other issues that comes up for us sometimes is the increased complexity and dealing with change and that blast radius again. We've taken that out of the picture by going into separate accounts and separate VPCs, but now we have a shared service and everything gets that shared service through a peering configuration. It's not always easy to touch that peering configuration depending upon what other services are using it to get into that shared service. Uh, here's how we uh, actually go ahead and work on decoupling that with private link. If this clicker would work. Ah, here we go. So we still have shared services. It's really hard to escape that when you start putting applications out there in an account and VPC uh, isolation scenario. What I'm showing here is basically a way to get around having to use VPC peering to access those shared services. You don't run into any service limits in this way. You don't have any issues with managing security group sprawl, nothing like that, right? Everything's really clean. It's an ENI based model. Um, it's really easy to track what's talking to what, and you're, you have a very, um, a very good understanding of what your access patterns are when you move to this model. When you are still doing VPC peering, you also run the risk of misconfiguring something, and now you're exposing everything in VPC A to everything in VPC B potentially, with the only control really being security groups and route table management. With private link, you're, you're pinning things one-to-one. -one. So you talk to an ENI in your VPC that talks to a specific shared service in a, a different VPC. Uh, here's another way that we use um, private link, and this has also been really, uh, really key for us. We're trying to uh, leverage this more and more, actually, uh, for uh, what, we're, what we're doing. Um, like I mentioned earlier, we have a very complex IP network. Uh, it's not always simple to get IP address allocations that are routable in our data centers. It's not always easy to get IP address ranges that aren't going to overlap with other things. It's not always possible to rapidly provision Direct Connect or a VPN. What we can do with Private Link is essentially create a presentation layer in a single VPC that has connectivity to the bank, to a data center. It's a routable network. Everything's good. We then create private link consumer ENIs in that VPC that can be reached from the bank. All of those private link ENIs are then tagged to service providers in other VPCs for other services. This really, really helps us uh, do things quickly. We don't always have, like I said, we don't always have the luxury of being able to get um, IP addressing rapidly. This, this is a great pattern to follow if that's a problem uh, that, that comes up a lot with you guys. Um, with that, I think I'm going to turn it back over to James to continue. Hey, thank you, Paul.
So hopefully that was a helpful practical application of, of how a customer is, is really leveraging private link at scale to, to solve some of their, their really tough connectivity problems that, that aren't, aren't unique. There, there's many customers that, that share these type of, of issues and constraints. We wanted to end on this, this type of general you know, roadmap best practice of, of where to start. So now that you've seen this session, private link seems cool and sexy, you want to go and deploy it, where do you start? So for, for greenfield applications, this is where you have the, the most uh, ability to go in and do things new and differently. So you want to loosely couple, and you can leverage private link as a glue. There's also microservices and micro-segmentation, both of which are, are, cute, are buzzwords that are often overused, but it is a good strategy to go down. And anything that can work behind a network load balancer, you can scale and provide VP into v other VPCs through using private link. So it's, it's a good way to get started and, and have that connectivity so you can build your application and not worry about how it's going to be connected and what that connectivity actually looks like. So decoupling. And that's one of our general best practices overall in architecture is, is to decouple your, your infrastructure, which makes it more highly scalable and available. For existing applications, you can determine where you, you can decouple to that same point. So if you have things that are in the same VPC today, maybe they can be in different VPCs. Or if you're running NAT or having issues with connectivity based on your, your legacy architecture, you can look in putting private link in there to, to make that a little easier. Anything that will work behind a network load balancer, you could slip into the environment today and start leveraging this. And it doesn't need to be a cloud environment. It can be an on-prem environment, and we can have that connectivity through private link. If your applications will support proxy, if they're HTTP, HTTPS, you can go and deploy a proxy fleet and connect to them through, through proxy servers. That's certainly an option. For your on-premise environment, you can leverage VPN and Direct Connect. And we can extend both your on-prem into the cloud and from cloud and SaaS services running in the cloud to your on-prem environment in a secure manner that, that doesn't provide a, a direct layer three connectivity. For inter-region, connectivity, you can leverage inter-region peering to <clears throat> quickly expand into other regions. So you can expand very quickly and then gradually build out your infrastructure in those additional regions as needed. So hopefully this gives a, a good overview of, of ways that you can go and start using Private Link today. We're going to open it up to Q&A. Actually, we'll take that on the side of the stage here with the, the three of us. So thank you for attending this session. Um, now might be a good time to go to the bar if that's your thing. Um, but thank you for attending, and hopefully you found this informative. Uh, shout out to fill out the survey. Uh, hopefully five stars, but if not, uh, five is a good option. Thanks a lot.